Let me pray as we go into the sermon today. Lord God, I, I, just, I thank you for a chance to start a new series. And I pray that as we begin this new series, Better Together, that we might be able to capture what it means to serve you with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, Lord God. So guide uh, not only today, but these next several weeks as we uh, unpack your word and as we learn more about um, uh, our mind and our bodies and how to best respond to you in ways that uh, our obedience and our service will stick and not be kind of um, once in a while, but it'll be consistent and stable. So we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. We are doing a new series today that's going to run all the way to Thanksgiving, and it's a book based, I mean, it's a series based upon a book called The Other Half of Church. And it's a book that the staff and I have been going through together. And it, it talks about a lot of things. One of the things that we'll get in today is about our mind and the difference between a left brain and right brain mind, which can be sometimes overly simplistic, but there's a lot more to that that we're going to unpack today. But there's a lot more uh, in this series than just understanding our mind. To give you an idea of where we're going, next week we're going to talk about the either-or fallacy, how so many things in life are presented to us as an either-or uh, predicament or either or proposition, but so many things in life are not about this or that, but they're about a both and and understanding that. Uh, the third week, we're going to talk about how we grow as Christians. Well, how does spiritual formation take place? Because we often are so quick to tell people what they need to do or what we need to do and to guilt people, but we don't help them to understand how people change. Week four, we're going to talk about transformation how God transforms us in a practical way. Week five, we're going to talk about community and the importance of interconnectedness and not living as independent people, but in community together. Week six, we're going to talk about identity and what it means to forge a, a healthy, proper identity. Week seven, we're going to talk about uh, what it means to live as authentic people, not those who put on a mask and have that smile on Sunday morning and then we're falling apart and bleeding during the week, but those that are vulnerable and able to be real about who we are. Week eight, we're going to deal with narcissism and how narcissism destroys community and destroys interconnectedness. And it's also going to touch upon um, a spirit of humility and receptivity that is so healing and, and healthy for us. Week nine, we'll talk about total health, which is all aspects of health, not just emotional health or relational health or spiritual health or physical health, but all of that and the importance of all that. And then we'll, <coughs> excuse me, in the last week, wrap it up with just better together, all of the different nuances and facets of life in which it's better together, better to serve together, better to learn together, better to use all of our mind rather than part of our mind, uh, on and on and on. But today, I want to begin with just a, a few quotes to get you understanding this, this thing called the brain, our mind. Uh, Gerald, uh, and I have to say this, I, I'm a little insecure today because this week, for the first time in my life, I got fitted with a contact lens. And so um, for so long, the doctor said, we can correct your eyes and you'll be able to see a golf ball after 200 yards, but you'll lose all of the up close. And um, I said, well, I don't want to do that. So I have worn glasses now for probably 10 years, but only usually when I drive or at night or when I'm having to read things at a distance, never kind of inside. So 
I've been able to see my notes really well, but you guys are kind of fuzzy. And traditionally, or usually I'll go to staff meeting or go home and say, oh, it's fun to see so-and-so here today. And they'll be like, they weren't here. And I'm like, it looked like them. So the challenge that I have this morning is I can see all of you really good, but I might be a little bit like playing the trombone with my notes today. So if I look a little bit more note-tied, it's because I'm learning kind of this nuance. I only have one contact lens in. One gives me distance, the others, but it's kind of learning that. So that's, that's what's going on today. There's a guy named Gerald uh, Fishbach, and he wrote in Scientific American in 1992. He said, the human brain immediately confronts us with its great complexity. It weighs only three to four pounds, but it contains about 100 billion neurons, the same order of magnitude as the number of stars in the Milky Way. Insane. Um, Gregory Boyd and a guy named Al Larson, they wrote a book called Escaping the Matrix, uh, Setting Your Mind Free to Experience Real Life in Christ. And they write, the average adult brain consists of more than 10 billion neurons communicating with another, uh, uh, communicating with one another through more than 10 trillion synaptic connections. They go on to say, as unbelievable as it sounds, the number of possible neuronal connections in the brain is more than all of the stars in the known universe, approximately 50 billion galaxies with an average of 100 billion stars each. Although the average dendrite is a fraction of a millimeter in size, if you were to line up all of the dendrites in your brain, the, the line would circle the globe five times. And all of that is inside of our mind and our brain. And I start with that today just to give you... Uh, sometimes we talk simplistically about the brain and how we learn and how things work, but it is just so complex and so fascinating with the intricacy of how we've been created. And this book was born out of one of the authors, Michael Hendricks, would meet with a number of other friends, many of whom were pastors like he is, or Christian leaders, and they would get together regularly and talk about spiritual formation because they, they all loved the Lord and they all were struggling within their ministries and church settings to fully understand how is it that people grow and how do we help them to be able to grow. And one day, one of the members of the group said, I need to invite my friend Jim Wilder because he's got some fascinating insights on this. And so one day, Jim came and he introduced himself as a neurotheologian. And they're like, what in the world is a neurotheologian? And he said, well, I have a master's degree in theology and I have a doctorate in psychology. And so I have studied kind of the marriage of the mind and theology or scripture and how it is that people learn and how it is that they're motivated. And Michael Hendricks admits, he said, you know, here I was a pastor in charge of spiritual formation, and I really had no idea how it really is that people grow and how it is that people mature and develop. So often in the past, we just point people to verses or passages, and we think that just having the information or the facts is enough. And on one hand, it is because, you know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And it's as, it's as we know truth and process truth that we're confronted with what God has for us. But oftentimes, 
the transformation that happens is momentary and not lasting. Oftentimes, the transformation that happens is out of obligation or duty or guilt or a number of other motivating factors that aren't sustaining and aren't long-lasting. And so how, it is, how is it that we can produce change in each other's lives, change in our own life, that, that remains and that is significant? We're talking about the physio, physiology today. And so this Jim Wilder was saying to this Michael Hendricks and his friends, he said, the way I can describe it is this. He said, most phones have two processors running simultaneously. One handles the cell phone communication. The second processor runs everything else. And the human brain is similar in this. It also has two processors, one on the right and the other on the left. And they work together, but they specialize in different responsibilities. Generally speaking, the right side, as we've heard, is the creative side. The left side is the analytical side. There are those who are right-brain dominant and those who are left-brain dominant. Right-brain dominant people tend to be people like musicians and artists. Left-brain dominant people tend to be people like accountants and engineers. And they see the world differently, they process the world differently. But understanding the brain is not quite that simple. It's a lot more complex. Of all the ways which we interpret the world... From seeing an expression on a friend's face to smelling our grandmother's roast chicken in the oven, the, the dual processor of our brain is, is constantly processing everything that we take in, everything that we experience. And they tell us that it starts in the back of the left side of the brain and it moves to the front. And then somewhere behind our right eye, it crosses over and it goes from the front of the right brain to the back of the right brain. And everything that we do, whether it's a conversation that we have, whether it's uh, an experience at work, whether we're out you know, enjoying sports, or whatever it is in life, follows this process and this path. Um, the right side uh, starts processing our surroundings and draws conclusions before the left side even knows what's going on, before the left side is even aware of many things. It says the right hemisphere processes uh, working identity and integrating our reality at six times per second. Our brain brings together current experience and emotionally important personal memories to create an active sense of who we are in relationship and experiences at any one time. The left side of our brain processes at five times per second. So they're both extremely fast, but the right brain is always a little bit ahead of the left brain. Our right brain governs the whole range of relational life, who we love, our emotional reactions to our surroundings, the ability to calm ourselves, and our identity, both as individuals and as a community. The right side manages our strongest relational connections to each other and to God. It helps us to experience emotional connectedness to others. And here's the thing that got me that is perhaps the most important thing to emphasize today. It also handles character formation or spiritual formation. So one of, this, one of the points of this book and one of the things that we're addressing today is that 
for most of my life, I don't know about you, I have been kind of working with one side of my brain. I have been very left-brained and, and not understanding the right side of my brain or activities that stimulate that or that help me to learn and understand long-term. And so with something as significant as spiritual maturity and Christian formation, after all, I have a master's in Christian formation and discipleship. They never taught me this stuff in seminary. I, I know tons of scripture. I know tons of theories. I know to tons of theologians. But I've never understood the physiology like I have in this last month. But understanding this helps us to lead to spiritual formation and maturity that lasts rather than that which is just temporary. This author says, so if we want to grow and transform our character into the character of Jesus, we must involve activities that stimulate and develop the right side of the brain. Now that sounds very humanistic because again, isn't scripture all we need? Yes, it is. But just knowing the truth sometimes is not enough. Knowing the truth does not necessarily mean we have the motivation to do the right thing, and it doesn't mean that we necessarily understand how that's going to happen on a day-to-day -day, uh, basis. I, I love what author and pastor Mark Batterson says. He says, neuroimaging has shown that as we age, our cognitive center of gravity shifts from the imaginative right brain to the logical left brain. At some point, most of us stop living out of imagination and we start living out of the logical left brain. We start living out of memory. And that's the day that we stop creating the future and start repeating the past. That's the day that we stop living by faith and start living by logic. So we stop living out of imagination and we start living out of memory. We stop creating new things, but we start repeating old things. We start living by logic rather than by faith. And as we're going to see in this, and where I'm leading with this, is not to lift up and praise the right side of the brain to the exclusion of the left, but it's a both. It's a both and. It's not an either or, but it's both working in harmony and understanding both. There's another dynamic that's going on in our lives, and I, I love this story that Michael Hendricks tells in this book that I want to share it with you. He talks about when he and his family first moved into their first house. He said, I decided to plant tomatoes. And to my surprise, the plants exploded over the summer, and we had hundreds of homegrown tomatoes. We had a difficult time keeping up with the harvest. I was surprised how easy and fun it was. Planting tomatoes in the spring became a yearly tradition for our family. Unfortunately, my tomato harvest decreased over the next few years until one summer I only picked a handful. I discovered that tomatoes are heavy consumers of nutrients, so they deplete the soil over time. I was planting and watering the same way each year, but saw fewer and fewer tomatoes. My mistake was that I was neglecting the soil, which got depleted. I read an article on the building blocks of healthy soil and immediately started building my soil back to health. I replenished the soil each year and with the nutrients that tomatoes need to grow, and my harvest quickly improved. Here's the thing that got me. He said, I started wondering whether the same thing was happening in my Christian life. Was I trying to grow in depleted soil? 
And he said that for himself and for most Christians, when you accept the Lord, you have a period of anywhere from two to eight to ten years where you're just growing and you're exploding and everything is exciting and you're just, you have such a passion and zest of life. And, and then you reach a point where oftentimes you get apathetic or complacent or you're just kind of treading water where you're at. And he said oftentimes it's because of this very dynamic that we're doing all of the right things, but we're not getting the same results because the soil of our heart and of our life has been depleted. And as I'm going to say later, you know, there are many things that can deplete the soil of our life. Um, there are negative things, traumatic experiences. Certainly we know that sin can sap us of some of the nutrients that God uh, intended for us. But to be honest with you, there are good things that deplete the soil as well. Doing ministry is exhausting. Doing good things for the kingdom of God can drain you. It can deplete you. And the point is, if we are not intentional about living surrendered to God and going to Him to have Him replenish what's lacking, we can assume that certain things are healthy or in place, but not the case. And I thought there are so many aspects of life where this is true, where your marriage, maybe you're doing all of the things that you've always done, but you're getting a different result. Parenting, doing the same things, different result. Work, I mean, on and on and on. Can it be that we're assuming that certain things are remaining stable and they're not? They're, they're de diminishing, they're, they're being deplenished, and they need to be renewed. And so I want to begin today on your outline, if you're taking notes, by three signs that the soil of our life, the soil of our heart, perhaps might be depleted. And the number one thing that I believe is a sign of depleted soil is that we experience minimal fruit of the Spirit. Minimal fruit of the Spirit. We still have the fruit of the Spirit in our life, but we start to see less of it. I'm not experiencing the same amount of joy that I used to experience. My patience isn't quite the same. <laughs> I'm not as gentle and kind in my interactions with others. You know, you go through each of the fruit of the Spirit and you realize, yeah, I have that to some degree, but not like I should and not like I used to. That's a sign that perhaps the soil of our life has been depleted. And God's plan for us is to have fruit and have it abundant and to have it constant in our life. I think of Jesus' words in John 15, the famous passage about the vine and the branches. John 15, verse 16, Jesus said, You didn't choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and produce fruit, lasting fruit. Fruit that remains. Jesus talks about a, lot, a lot about that, that I'm going to help you produce fruit, fruit that will remain, fruit that will last. In Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul talks about how each of us heard the gospel. And from the moment we heard the gospel, the truth about who God is and what God has done for us, we, we started growing in grace and truth. And he said that it had the effect of bearing fruit and increasing fruit in our life. So it bore fruit in our life, but not just fruit, but fruit that increased and grew and multiplied. That's what the gospel does. That's what the truth of God working in our life brings about, that we bear fruit. And that fruit is not just kind of the same or slowly over time diminishing, but it grows and it increases. And yet the reality, as I've already shared, is that for most of us, we, think, we see things diminish in our life. 
we see things decrease, both from good experiences as well as bad experiences. Things that are traumatic and harmful, such as sin and, and crises in our life, to things that are good, like ministry and, and serving others. And, you know, serving others is draining and tough. And so we need to replenish the soil. And that's why we see, like in Psalm 51, where King David, after he sinned with Bathsheba, and it was at the lowest point of his life, he cried out, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation, because I've lost it. And there's those times when we realize, I've lost the joy. I've lost the peace that I used to have. I've lost the hope about my own life, about my family, about the future, about a lot of things. And God is the one who replenishes that. I love the promise that Paul reminds us of in Romans chapter 15, verse 13. He says, Oh, may the God of great hope fill you up with joy, fill you up with peace, so that your believing lives, filled with the life-giving energy of the Holy Spirit, will brim over with hope. Brim over. So it's just this picture of God filling us up with everything that we need so that we are not only full and saturated with joy and peace and love and hope and all of the fruit of the Spirit, but we have an abundance to give to others. That in giving to others, it doesn't deplenish us. It doesn't leave us in a place of, you know, I'm on life support and I need to have an injection of these things because I've given so much away. No, that's what God desires for us. But decreasing fruit of the Spirit in our life is a sign <coughs> that perhaps the soil might be depleted. A second thing is that, I, I, I phrase it this way, we're, we're expending the same energy, the same efforts, but seeing diminished results. Putting out the same amount of work and sometimes even more work but seeing diminished results. You ever felt like that? I'm working as hard as I used to work, sometimes even a lot harder, but I'm seeing less and less success, less and less results, less and less fruit. Oftentimes that can be an indication that, yeah, I'm doing the right things, but I'm lacking certain nutrients, certain things in my life. I think about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 13. The disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to the crowds in parables? And Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more will be given. And to the one who has an abundance, um, they, they will have an abundance, but to the one who does not have, even what they have will be taken away from them. Because I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see. When they hear, they do not hear and they don't understand. It's the case of the prophet Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but you won't understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear. With their eyes, they cannot see. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, they would hear with their ears, and they would understand with their heart, and they would return, and I would heal them. So Jesus describes this this picture where the, the average person that he was ministering to in the crowds had, had reached a place of, of callousness, of dullness, of apathy, to where they were doing, they were listening, they were seeing, but they weren't understanding, they weren't perceiving, they weren't truly internalizing. 
They were doing the right things, but they were missing the big picture. And it made me think about the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, you know, said, well, you know the commandments, and he repeated some of them. And the guy said, I've done all those. In fact, I've been practicing those since I was a a young kid. And he asked this, he said, what am I still lacking? And that's when Jesus said, you know what, go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And the guy went away sad because he owned a lot, and he wasn't willing to do that. And, And I honestly don't believe Jesus was saying that that was necessary, but what was necessary is that this guy was very secure in his self-righteousness. He wasn't at that place of dependence. And as we've said so many times, the Old Testament law was not a standard that was set up like a game where we kind of are in competition with one another to see who can do it the best. Because the truth is that we all fall incredibly short of the perfection and glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The reason for the law was to illuminate and to highlight our shortcomings and our sins so that we might go to Jesus as our Savior, who's the answer for our sin. It it shows our need for Jesus. And so we go to Christ in dependence and surrender and say, would you be my righteousness because I can't do this on my own. I can do it better than some people, but I can't live out the perfection that you are. And that's the whole point of the gospel. And so Jesus knew that this guy was playing that game, and as a religious person of the first century, he was doing it better than a lot of other people, so he felt pretty confident. But Jesus is like, no, you need to be in a place where you give away everything that you have, so you are living day-to-day, moment-to-moment, independence upon me, surrender to me. And then you'll understand the kind of relationship I want to have with you. Not this cerebral, intellectual, head relationship where you know all the right things, but you've disconnected the right things from what it means to achieve and live out the goal that those things were designed to bring about. That's where this guy was at. And so going through the motions, but missing something important and essential, which is dependence and surrender to God. And I believe that's what happens when we're extending the same amount of energy and sometimes even more so, but seeing diminished results. The last thing that I would say today, and there are many things that we could talk about, but for the sake of today, this is the last one I'll cover, but it's decreased motivation. Decreased motivation. You're finding that you have less and less motivation to do the things that you do. Maybe you have less and less motivation to serve other people in ministry. (coughs) Maybe you have less and less motivation to make sacrifices for your family, for your loved ones. Maybe you have less and less motivation just to even get up out of bed in the morning. You know, to go to work, to do simple, simple things, because you've lost hope. You've lost the, the hope of, when I do this, I see this result, because you're not seeing results, and so you're losing all motivation and how discouraging that can be. Stephen uh, Seilman wrote a book called The Knowledge Illusion, Why We, we Never Think Alone. And he said there's an old Yiddish story about a shopkeeper who arrived at a shop only to find abusive and derogatory graffiti spray-painted all over his store window. He cleaned the window, but the same, same thing happened again the next day. So he came up with a plan. 
On the third day, he waited until the culprits showed up and did their dirty work. And then he paid them $10 to thank them for their effort. The next day, he thanked them again, but he only paid them $5. He continued to pay them until it was down to $1. And interestingly enough, the graffiti stopped because they lost motivation to do what they were doing because of the diminishing results that it was giving them. It's a story, it's a fable, but it speaks and it's representative of how when we do things in our life and the reward and the results become less and less, we lose motivation. It's easy to lose motivation. I I love what Viktor Frankl, the Austrian psychologist and Holocaust uh, survivalist said. He said, when we no longer are able to change our situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. When we are no longer able to change our situation or change the people around us, we are forced to address ourselves. And that's the hard task. But I love the hope that the Apostle Paul gives us in Scripture. Philippians chapter 2 is one of my favorite verses. It says, Philippians 2.13, For God is working in you, giving you both the strength and the desire to do what pleases Him. God is working in each one of us as Christians, each one of us that have given our life to God through Jesus, and he is giving us the strength and the desire, the power and the energy and the motivation to do all the things that he's called us to do, all the things that please him. So I want to end today with just quickly talking about, and I'm going to assure you that throughout this series, we're going to talk about more about how do we make this happen. Like, you're understanding a lot of the what today. As we get deeper into this over the next few weeks, we're going to unpack the how, and it's going to get really practical, and I think you're going to love it. But our love for Jesus is a right brain attachment function that produces obedience. But what makes it all happen? And I love this connection that he sees in John chapter 14, verse 22 to 24. And I have to say that I have read this passage many, many times, and I have not seen this in there. John 14, 22 to 24. Judas, not Iscariot, says to Jesus, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Why are you telling us stuff that you're not telling the general population? Jesus answered and said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you have heard is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. I have been so fascinated by John 14 because it begins with, you know, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, and I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And the beauty of finally understanding that Jesus was talking about the cross. He was talking about, I'm going to the cross to prepare a place for you because in the future, God is not going to dwell in temples made by human hands. He's going to dwell in hearts and in lives. And the way that's going to happen is through salvation and through the forgiveness of your sins so that you might be cleansed to be a worthy temple. And then connecting that with the later on in John 14 when he says, if you love me, will make our abode, our dwelling place within you. And I've been so fascinated by that. I miss the fact that Jesus is only, Jesus and his heavenly father are only interested in communicating truth 
to those who love him. Because only those who love Jesus will follow and do what he says. If you don't love him, you won't do what he says, or you'll do it, but not for very long. And so this guy brilliantly points out that love is the first step. We love Jesus and we will obey. When we don't love Jesus, we won't obey. Our loving attachment to Jesus forms our character. A left-brained view of Jesus' teaching would conclude that we need to choose to obey. And this will prove that we love him. But that is exactly backwards. If I want to obey Jesus, I need to focus on right brain skills that help me love him and receive his love. My behavior will take care of itself. Our brains are designed to change through love. And I love that. Friends, fear will motivate people. Shame will motivate people. Obligation, duty, a sense of responsibility motivates. There's a lot of things that motivate people, but you've heard even in secular environments that love is the most incredible motivator. Love is the motivation that helps us to change and to do things for life, not merely for a season. The development of our relational and emotional life helps our soil to be more fruitful. While the spiritual disciplines remove obstacles to our growth because even healthy seeds won't grow in depleted soil. So wrapping this up, many of us are trying to grow in depleted soil. That's apparent. But the relational nutrients that we need have been run down and exhausted. And when this happens in our life, we end up becoming shriveled. We end up becoming fruitless. There's little transformation because the parts of our brain that work to grow our character are malnourished. They're underdeveloped. Not only this, but many of us, myself included, have been living as half-brain Christians. We've been living with only one part of our mind, neglecting the half of our brains, uh, not only the other half, but the most important half that has to do with spiritual formation, with character development. A left brain disciple, as left-brain disciples, we've been emphasizing things like beliefs and doctrine and willpower and strategies, and every single one of those is vitally important. I'm not downplaying those. But at the same time, we've been neglecting right brain functions like loving attachments, things like joy, things like emotional development, things like identity. And this results in Christians who know what and what not to do, but we don't have a clue about how to do it. Or if we have an inkling of how to do it, we don't have the motivation to do it for uh, a permanent situation and not more than just a few hours or a few days. And as this guy says, the answer is not right-brain Christianity versus left-brain Christianity. The, the answer is a whole-brain Christianity coming to God with all that we are. And I love that I'm reminded of that passage in the gospel where the Pharisee comes to Jesus and he wants to trick him. He says, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus says, and you know it very well, to love the Lord thy God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, other verses say with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. And he said, the second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. In these two commandments, all of the other commandments are fulfilled. And I got to thinking... 
If the most important thing in all of our Christian faith is to love God, not only with all of our heart, not only with all of our soul and all of our strength, but also with all of our mind. And if we're trying to do that with only part of our mind, wouldn't it be helpful for us to spiritually and physiologically understand how our mind works and how it can come to play? Because I love that the Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 2.16 that we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ as Christians. And the challenge for us is to use all of it. So that's where we're going in the next few weeks. This, I want you to understand, this is not, well, we just presented deep discipleship last week, and now we're going to pause for a number of weeks, and then we'll get back to deep discipleship. This is part of deep discipleship. Because we can teach all of those three categories that I talked about. Scripture, knowledge, uh, beliefs, and doctrines, and then Christian living or Christian formation. We can know all of that stuff, but not know the how of how we do it and why we do it and how we can do that for a long time, not just a season. And this is going to help us get there. So this is very much a part of deep discipleship. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the things that we've been learning today. I know for many of us, this might be a little bit more cerebral, a little bit more humanistic, a little bit more physiological than it is spiritual or theological. But I thank you, God, that you are the God who created us, and you are the God that knows each aspect and facet of our lives. And you want to bring all of that together to glorify yourself and to form us into people that are that are made in your image, Lord God. So if there's parts of our life that we've been neglecting that we can surrender to you and that we can understand better and employ to serve you uh, and to be spiritually formed into your image, we want to do that. And so we ask that you would open our minds and our hearts and our ears to receive your truth during this series, that we might grow not only individually but corporately um, as, as your body, as your church. Lord God, as we give back of our resources today, as I said, whether we do that physically here or whether we do that online, we acknowledge that everything that we have is a gift from you. And we ask that you would take our gifts, multiply our ties to meet not only the needs of this church and this church budget to pay for the staff and the ministries here, but also the ministries in Ventura that we partner with and that we support, as well as our missionaries around the world that are doing your kingdom work. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.